The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. So very nice to be here again and in person, yeah, which is becoming a bit of a treat these days isn't it? because of COVID-19. As I said, I think probably before, we used to take it as for granted, really, you know, that there would be a teaching on Sunday morning in person. But now that, of course, changed. So, And that's one of the ways, in fact, we develop gratitude or thanks is when we are parted from that, which we, you know, are used to, normal, that uh, we're accustomed to, like our family and friends and people we work with. But if we thought, well, maybe tomorrow, you know, I'm, I might pass away, they may pass away, or they go away, you know, they go travelling on a holiday or something. And then one really does uh, have this sense of thanks, gratitude for those people and situations in our lives. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's often a good thing to have these sort of interruptions to the normal proceedings, what we consider to be normal. <laughs> so... Um, I'll just introduce myself for those online who don't know me. I'm Ajahn Nisarano. I'm an Australian monk, and I ordained with Ajahn uh, Brahm uh, 23 years ago. This will be my 24th year this year, um, and have been living in Sri Lanka. I've lived in Sri Lanka for 13 and a half years. I often say 14, but I've been here most of for over a year now. Um, living in Sri Lanka, living in forests and living in caves, living in a cave for eight years. That was very nice. And now here, I'm back here in Melbourne, in Victoria, and I'm staying at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, which is just outside Melbourne. So I was going to ask people here, just got to look at the audience though first. Uh, this is this is a lead, leading question. They say, <laughs> "Do you know what holiday it was last Thursday, fourth of February?" Anybody know what holiday it was last? Hmm? Very good. I had a group of Sri Lankan people at the monastery the other day, and I said, "What day is the you know uh, last Thursday was a holiday, and it was the fourth of February?" And they took a while to 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 come up with Independence Day because it's, uh, I think, 72 years since Sri Lanka became independent. After about 300-plus years of being under foreign rule from the Portuguese, the Dutch, and then the English. So it's a very happy day for them. And it's a big holiday in, in Sri Lanka, big parade and everything. So you may think, what's that got to do with the Dhamma? <laughs> no, that is, that is actually priming me for the talk, which is about freedom, about independence, what the Buddha uh, and what the Dhamma talks about in terms of freedom and independence. It's a little bit different from Independence Day. <laughs> so, And uh, I'd like to just uh, quote from a teaching. I usually start with a quotation, sometimes in Pali, um, but this one I'll just do in English. And uh, many people, uh, having heard that uh, the theme is about independence and freedom, will probably not be surprised by this quote. And it is, just as from the Buddha, uh, just as the great ocean has but one taste, the taste of salt, so too this Dhamma and discipline has but one taste, the taste of liberation. This is the sixth amazing, astounding and amazing quality that the bhikkhus see in this Dhamma and discipline. 
So this is, and he's giving a list of eight actually qualities about the Dhamma. Uh, so this is the the lead to it that the ta- the teachings of the Buddha, all the teachings of the Buddha, are concerned with liberation or with freedom, to some degree or rather. And of course, the path is aimed at complete liberation, but. Along the path, all aspects of the path, actually, they give us a taste of freedom. Uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a, in a minute. So the whole path is a path to liberation. And this is the destination for, for uh, that the Buddha is encouraging us to take. Of course, many people, um, I think even in, in traditional Buddhist countries, many people they say, well, I'm not ready to become enlightened yet, you know. <laughs> Even though when they pass away, they have on the death notices, they have these little notices they plaster in Sri Lanka on trees and uh, on light poles and so on, saying, Niwan suas lebebe veva, and it means, may you attain Nibbana. And I think, I'm sure many people think, I'm sure they don't want to. <laughs> Most people won't want to. But nevertheless, you know, along the path, there are lots of liberations that we, we receive, even, even though we are not re- maybe not ready for the full liberation or full enlightenment and not coming back again, not being reborn. But I'd like to point out too, you know, the important thing about freedom, you know, it's a concept for sure, isn't it? It's an idea. But also it's, a, it's an emotion too, isn't it? When we think of freedom, you know, however, what type, however, whatever type of freedom you're thinking of, it brings up a sense of joy and a sense of lightness of being. It does for me, actually. It gives energy and inspiration. And, of course, it's, it is. It's like a feeling of being uh, uh, released from a prison. And, of course, the, the prisons that the Buddha is interested in and we are concerned with, it's our direct experience. It's this body and mind. <laughs> you ask uh, older people, myself included, uh, you know, is the body a prison? And many will say, mm, it, yes, it is. It's getting more and more confining as you get older. And if you've had a stroke, of course, it's, it can be a devastating sort of prison, actually. It can be solitary confinement. So, and the same with the mind. If the mind hasn't developed wisdom, hasn't developed understanding, it can be a prison for people, a prison of suffering, uh, a place of torment, um, because uh, they're not understanding the nature of reality uh, and the nature of their minds. And I always reflect in terms of emotion, the emotion of freedom, going on arms round in Sri Lanka, particularly in Sri Lanka, sometimes just leaving the, the hut or the kuti, but this sense of going into the village with my uh, bowl, we have a bowl we take, and collect food every day in the village. I go usually about six o'clock, just after six, after sunrise, and then go to, from house to house to collect food. Um, usually only about three or four houses enough, so there's quite a lot of food. But this feeling of, it's strange, you know, you're going... One's going on arms round, you don't know whether you'll get anything. In a Buddhist country, it's very unlikely that you won't get something. <laughs> very unlikely. More the opposite, really. Um, but there's a sense of lightness and a sense of freedom with that. And it reminds us of the Buddha. You know, the Buddha has said, you know, when we uh, are going on arms round, when we are traveling as a monk or a nun, 
we take our arms bowl and our robes and there's this sort of freedom in that going in in this way, in a simple way. I usually carry more than that, <laughs> but on arms around I don't. So that's very good. And of course there are many types of freedom in the world and uh, uh, one of the, the most obviously, uh, there's worldly freedom, isn't there? And the, the Independence Day in Sri Lanka last Thursday was a very, it's a worldly phenomenon. But there's also other freedoms. There's so many freedoms people will talk about. But freedom from our hunger, freedom from thirst. There's the freedom related to all the things that we need as requisites to live, things like shelter, people need shelter, clothing and medicine. But the Buddha, of course, um, he didn't neglect these, these things. He, there's, of course, these practicalities, these necessities, essential. Otherwise, can't practice. In, f- in fact, probably can't live. <laughs> so, but he's more interested in the spiritual freedom. The freedom of the heart and the mind. And that's the sort of freedom that the Buddha is um, uh, talking about. And of course, his, the freedom of the heart and the mind, a very radical one if you take right to enlightenment. That's incredible freedom uh, from uh, all the suffering, all the defilements, all the uh, experiences of impermanence. Uh, all this uh, the Buddha is teaching us how to become free of. Whether we want to become free, that's another thing. <laughs> I often, I don't know if you've seen this, I've seen it, that you, you know, with a caged bird or a caged animal, if you open the door, often they won't leave, you know, or they take some time before they, they venture out. And we're the same, actually, you know, we, we're so familiar with our environment that we don't, we feel afraid to venture out. So this is something that's quite natural uh, for, for us. But of course, I'd like to ask all of us, myself included, you know, are we really free or are we in prisons of our, not of our own making, you could say it's the making of our conditioning. So that's worth uh, contemplating, you know, are we really free or are we in a prison? Most people, they will say, what are you talking about? I'm not in a prison. You know, I have everything the way I wish or maybe somewhat the way I wish. Um, so people often won't think like that. But I, I reflect and I see it with the kangaroos at the monastery. You know, that's much easier to see for us actually that these uh, kangaroos, that they're really, they're imprisoned in a kangaroo body, in an animal body. For them, you know, probably the delight, you see them eat a lot during the day, and Newbury Buddhist Monastery is paradise. It's like Hungry Jacks or McDonald's for them because it's all grass. And around the new huts that have been built for the men, uh, the uh, monks, sorry, the monks and the, the uh, monks, vihara as I call it, there's, there's been some grass growing. So this is not the ordinary grass. And you see them. They, they love it. They think it's... I'm sure it must be very tasty. <laughs> So for the kangaroos, this eating is a big part of life, and so is fighting and mating and uh, uh, defecating is a big one too, and giving birth. And you see there's relationships too, particularly nice between the joeys and, and the mother kangaroos and so on. But from a human perspective, when we look at that, we think, wow, 
that's a, a really thing. And, you know, people have this idea, idea that, oh, it's a, you know, be a simple life, a peaceful life. I don't know all about that, actually, but I certainly know it would be cold because I see them out there in the rain, the snow, and, you know, they're just, they, they're eating away, you know, and just, uh, and I think, my goodness, I couldn't bear it. You know, when I first came to Newbury, I thought, maybe I should invite kangaroos in, <laughs> or at least to come on the veranda. But they're so scared of people. But, but of course, then I discovered, actually, I realised uh, after a time that they're out there in the rain, they're out there in the snow, the cold wind, it's freezing, you know, it's down to, you know, uh, if it's snowing, it's quite cold, about zero or something like that. But as soon as it gets hot, they disappear. They go into the forest, they go under shade. So I realised, you know, that they probably don't suffer so much in the cold weather, but they do suffer in the hot weather. They're not built for it, which is... It's much better to be uh, prepared for cold weather at Newbury <laughs> than the hot weather. It's, very, it's not very, so, uh, very often hot. So that's a, it, it shows us when we look at animals' lives, we see you know, that they're really caught in their life and they know no different life. And in a way, we're of a very similar nature. We know no different life. And this is why the Buddha's teaching emphasizes meditation so much because we're developing the mind, we're going to the realm of the mind, which is a different world, a different experience from the five senses. And I know um, for, you know, talking about animal rebirths and so on, the Buddha has that very, I call it an extreme simile, because it's, it's such a striking one, that the, to, for an animal to become a human being, is like a turtle swimming in the four great oceans, I think it's the four great oceans, and there's a life buoy, a ring, a yoke in the ocean. And this turtle comes up once in every hundred years. And the Buddha said, what is the likelihood that that turtle will go through that ring? And he said, the like, that likelihood is the same as the likelihood of an animal being reborn as a human or higher. So you can see that that is... Um, you know, that's quite a, uh, you know, striking. It, it really it shows us that to be reborn as an animal is not a, <laughs> not a desirable thing. And why is that? Because rebirth, when we take rebirth, it's based on our desires, our attachments, those things that are dear to us. What's dear to a kangaroo? Grass, you know, a, a kangaroo body, <laughs> you know, all those things. And it's the same for us. We are, we are conditioned by or limited by the human aspects, the human, the things that we're attached to, the human body, the five senses, five senses and family, friends um, and possessions, so many things that we're attached to. So it actually makes one reflect, you know, that we are somewhat prisoners. I was going to bring into, actually I was really looking forward to using it, but it's not enough time, is Plato's uh, analogy of the cave. Have you heard that one? That's fantastic. It's a really, it's so Buddhist actually, you know, that uh, Plato wrote this uh, book, I suppose he wrote it, called The Republic, and in it the main character is his teacher, Socrates, and he's talking to, I think, Plato's brother. And he describes this cave. He just says, imagine this cave with all the people looking at the back wall of this cave. 
and they're chained, so they're just facing the back wall, and all they see is shadows. And for them, this is life, this is reality. But those shadows, uh, um, Plato says, or Socrates, his character says, are being generated by a fire behind these people, and they have a low wall to hide people who are actually moving objects that are projected, and people, looks like people too, projected on the cave. And so they take this to be as reality. They think this is, this is life, all these things. And then one of them, uh, one of them escapes. Well, he doesn't escape. He's actually, one does escape. He, he uh, goes back and he sees the fire and he becomes blinded by the fire. He becomes terrified by the fire, the light. is so bright because of the cave that he returns to the wall because it's familiar. <laughs> He knows, you know, he's comfortable with the wall. And then, in another occasion, uh, uh, Socrates says, and suppose somebody dragged one of these prisoners from the cave past the fire that's generating all these shadows, once they got past being blinded by all that light, and then up, t- up the steep slope to the entrance to the cave, to the exit from the cave. And then they'd see the real world. He said initially they'd be blinded by that light as well. And then after a time they'd realise this is the real world. This is the real world. And then, uh, Socrates says, then they would come back to the cave and tell other people about that experience. And they wouldn't believe it. (laughs) They wouldn't believe it. And also... uh, uh, Socrates says, and it's quite, uh, quite interesting because he says, and if somebody tried to drag them out of that cave, off looking at the wall, looking at the shadows, they would probably kill that person. What happened to Socrates? <laughs> they killed him. He, he had to take poison because uh, he was uh, um, charged with corrupting, uh, corrupting youth with his you know, a radical way of looking at life and and also investigating life, which is very similar to the Buddhist idea of investigation. And so this cave is a very interesting, it's got a lot of interesting symbolism, hasn't it? Because for all of us, you know, the, uh, what we're seeing, for most of us, what we're seeing are shadows that are being projected. What are they being projected by? Our conditioning from our society, um, from all the influences in our life. And we're seeing these shadows on the wall, we're not seeing, and we think this is real, and we get upset about it. We have views. Actually, this is the big thing. We have lots of views about these shadows and so on. And it's only the rare person that turns around and or escapes to see the fire. And then, as in, in Buddhism too, some meditators, they see, they get a glimpse of reality, and it really scares them. <laughs> so they go back and sit down quietly. <laughs> And try to ignore that experience because they weren't ready for it. And then some meditators actually, I don't know if we'd say they get dragged, that sounds awful, doesn't it? You know, but they do manage to escape from the cave. And through direct experience, because of their meditation, giving, empowering their insight, they see reality. And they actually got a direct experience of no longer the shadows that are on the wall of the back of the cave. And then they come back and tell people, and people, <laughs> oftentimes, I think people can't relate to it, actually. They think, maybe he's been meditating too long, or she's been meditating too long. <laughs> maybe they should go back to a cave. 
I lived in a cave for eight years, so it was a bit different from this cave that Plato talked about. So it's got lots of lots of levels. And for me, I think many of you too, immediately hear of the shadows on the back wall of the cave. What do you think of? What do I think of? Television, the internet, the, the smartphone, the radio, all these things. It's just like shadows and wow, do we take that for real? Do we jump up and down when we see a post that we don't like? You know, we hear words that we don't like, we see pictures that we don't like. And this, this, this is what I thought when I, when I think of Plato's image of the cave. I think it's a, a really good image and it fits Buddhism so well. And of course the cave is quite a dark place, the shadows are dark. What do you think the darkness is? What does it symbolise? Absolutely, I think it has to be. And the light, you know, when they're blinded by the light or the fire and then the blinded of the light outside the cave, what do you think that is? Wisdom, yeah. It's seeing things as they truly are, which is very Buddhist, isn't it? So you can read into it a very Buddhist message. I think it's quite a brilliant uh, image that uh, um, Plato uh, probably his teacher Socrates actually first taught and very interesting um, uh, can be used for a metaphor for our lives so it's, it's very sobering to think we may be in caves just looking at shadows <laughs> but for an enlightened person like the Buddha and enlightened monks and nuns that would be the case we see that people are uh, uh, fighting these shadow, uh, shadow images and what are the things that are trapping us, not only allowing us to discover freedom? And this is where the Buddha's teachings really um, uh, lead to liberation, lead to freedom. And of course, what is the main thing that the Buddha is liberating us from? Is suffering, isn't it? Is suffering. And that is what the, the whole teachings aims at. You know, the Buddha says uh, that he teaches suffering and the end of suffering to reach, you know. So this is the, the aim of the Buddha. But that suffering comes from a number of things. I think everybody can relate to this because the, where's the main suffering coming from in our lives? Don't, don't say him or her or the neighbour or... People will say things like that, won't they? Very good, yeah, craving. It's coming... It's coming from our defilements, isn't it? It has to be. You know, that's a very big um, sense of where our suffering comes from, is from the defilements. Of course, it comes from twofold, isn't it? Because these, these uh, defilements, they really torture us. You know, what are the things that are torturing us? Desire, aversion and delusion. They sound pretty innocent words, <laughs> but in practice they are really, um, really torturing us. As, as you just mentioned, craving, and craving is a particular great torture of us, you know, the desire, wanting, that really can, can cause us a lot of suffering. So I'd just like to uh, talk a little bit about the, the defilements because that's what, uh, I've got time, yes, um, that is what is the liberation, big part of liberation is about. Even for the fully enlightened one, it is complete liberation from the defilements, permanent. That's an important aspect of their uh, enlightenment or awakening. But 
when you think of, for instance, desire, you know, desire we call uh, including uh, craving, including wanting, uh, including sexual desire, all those desires actually, the world we know, what does it think about that desire? It celebrates it, doesn't it? It celebrates it, you know. I see all the advertising, enliven your senses, you know. And I've seen a cafe called Cravings. <laughs> I think it's out in one of the suburbs. I drove past, I thought, wow. It's cool. That's really honest. <laughs> I thought, wow. But they, because craving, you know, it's, it's got a, you know, some people will think of it as a good thing, you know. It gives us hope. It gives us purpose in life. It gives us meaning. Uh, and it also causes a lot of suffering too. Because people think that that desire will lead to their happiness and don't realize immediately we have a desire. We have the sense of a lack. We want, we need this, we want this, we have to have it. Even if it's something like a cup of coffee in five minutes or whatever it is, we don't have it now. So there's a sense, a sense of lack there can be a sense of looking forward to it, of course, anticipation, excitement, depending on the desire. But also it comes with that fear, that anxiety too, doesn't it? Maybe I won't get it. <laughs> or maybe somebody else will get it, because that's what we get. We get competition, and then you get the second uh, uh, unwholesome root, aversion, ill will, anger. But you probably know, and I'll just mention it just uh, uh, in brief too, that Ajahn Brahm's teaching of the two types of freedom. Do you know that? I think most people do. So it's the freedom of desire, and that's what the world is celebrating, absolutely. You know, that's what Chadston, the shopping centre nearby, is celebrating. <laughs> they hope that people will be celebrating <laughs> desire. And uh, sometimes we call that freedom of choice freedom of choice so people they like to have a lot of choice but I remember some years ago I went to a supermarket must be a while ago and I was absolutely amazed because there was a whole aisle of breakfast cereals and breakfast food I thought my goodness you know if, if I was shopping for breakfast cereals I'd get what I call choice paralysis paralyzed by the choice that you have and, of course, I think this is something that people do get, actually, except most people just hone in on what they want to get. But we can be overwhelmed by the choice, too. So this is another aspect of desire that really tortures, tortures us. And, of course, it's the second noble truth, too, is that uh, wanting, uh, desire, is what's causing our difficulties in life, and which is... Uh, particularly in the moment. If we don't have something at the moment, desire takes us into the future. It, it cannot accept the present moment as it is. And therefore, there's always this tension. There's always this uh, uh, ill at ease and this going out to the future. And the Buddha is, of course, talking about contentment, being happy here and now, happy to be here is the Buddha's happiness. And this desire is taking us into the future. So the other type of desire that the Ajahn Brahms talks about is freedom from desire. And this is what the Buddha is offering. <laughs> and of course, this is the third noble truth, that when we let go of wanting things to be different from what they are, um, it's worthwhile noting, you know, sometimes... 
it is okay to want things to be different if they're if they're uh, unjust or unfair or you know painful at that time, and to do what one can do. But if one can't change things at that present moment, it's wisdom to accept this is how it is, <laughs> for better or for worse. And so that is the 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 freedom from desire when we can accept things as they are in this moment. You know, it doesn't mean that they can't change, because this is is uh, in a in a moment, few moments, it could change completely, and and uh, other possibilities may arise. But whatever we're experiencing at this moment, it's arrived. <laughs> How do we deal with that? So this is uh, part of the wisdom of freedom from desire. And of course, you know, the part of the um, freedom from desire is to teach us simplicity, you know, simpli- to simplify our lives uh, so that we're not overloaded by choice. And uh, I heard a very nice talk by Ajahn Brahm called last, last week, uh, from last year, called Simplicity to the Max. <laughs> And it's a, it is this fewness of desires, fewness of wishes, which leads to things being simpler. You know, if you look at our lives, I often, often think, is that really all there is? You know, in terms of our necessities, as I mentioned, there's clothing, there's food, there's housing, and there is medicine. And, and yet, we can make so much of that and we can, you know, we can really go, go to the max with that, actually. And you see that that is often the case. I always like that saying one comedian said, don't try to keep up with the Joneses. Drag them down to your level. <laughs> I think that's good. <laughs> I don't know who said it. I can't remember now. Should, I should uh, Google it. I'm sure you'll find out who, who said it. I'm sure many people have said it. So, so this is the uh, this freedom uh, from desire, of course, of the third noble truth. And what does what's the result of when we uh, let go? This is what happens uh, when we accept the present moment as it is. Let go of these desires. What happens? We become more peaceful. Uh, the mind gets a sense of relief, a sense of ease, a sense of joy, because it's not focused. Hasn't got all this work to do to to get what uh, you know what we want because this is what the what uh, wanting does it gives us a lot of work we have to work hard to get these things that we want and as I've been saying to people I often mention it and often when we get what we want we don't want it anymore <laughs> it's, it's amazing and uh, I often mention that one of the sages in America used that as a song when you get what you want, you don't want it anymore. Do you know who it was? I've used it before, so many people must know. This great sage, wisdom, Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I don't think she listened to the song. <laughs> she sang it, but she didn't listen to it. So it's very. Um, so this is. This is uh, desire, you know, we're being freed from desire. And in actual fact, this is, it takes a Buddha to realize that. Because for most people, you tell them that wanting is the cause of suffering. That's, oh, come on, <laughs> that's a bit rich. <laughs> you know, they can't believe it, you know. And, and yet, when you look at it, if you look at it logically, you can say, yeah, he's right, yeah, he's right. And uh, so this is something that a Buddha sees 
you might say it was the uh, obvious, but, but it's something that we overlook. We think that uh, craving, we think that wanting, we think desire is our best friend. <laughs> it's going to make us happy. You know, and if we didn't have this, uh, we would be without hope, without uh, uh, happiness. But it's quite the opposite. And of course, the other the other aspects of uh, that we're trapped by was aversion. We talk about that. But unlike desire, desire is actually one of the strongest things that keeps us getting reborn. You know, the desire to to get to be to be reunited with those things that we like from this life, provided we've got the good karma to be reborn in a similar situation. So this is actually, I call it the uh, taproot of samsara. It's what keeps us coming back in again and again. And the other defilements, actually aversion particularly, can relate to this very much. When we don't get what we want, we can get, we can get very averse, angry, upset. And... Uh, it's so obvious that this is a suffering and the Buddha is teaching us ways to deal with this, to free us from the suffering of aversion. So what do people think is the main way the Buddha teaches to be free of aversion, to be liberated from it? Hmm? Loving kindness? Yes, loving kindness. Thanks, Ken. That's loving kindness, exactly. Because... Loving kindness is, uh, makes the mind, it's a peaceful, it's a happy state of mind, a kind state of mind, a friendly state of mind. But I always say to people, if we are upset or angry with a person, a situation, um, I was say even with ourselves, I don't know how, yes, maybe, um, the person who needs loving kindness first is ourselves. You know, if we are angry with our neighbour or our partner, uh, we need to, the loving kindness. Our partner may not be upset. The neighbour may not be upset. So we need it. And so it changes the mind when we, when we develop some loving kindness, some friendliness for ourselves, realising being a best friend for ourselves so that uh, a best friend doesn't want to see their, their uh, friend suffering and unhappy and... Um, you know, really upset. So this bringing a loving kindness, bringing friendliness to ourselves is a very good way to deal with that um, anger, and that av aversion, that ill will in the mind. And to then, once the mind has changed, is much more possible, then it's possible to interact with the other person in a better way. So this is, and I like, uh, there's a nice, uh, probably many of you know it, Ira Paker told me, she, this is years old, she said, I saw a fake Buddha quote. I have a person in Sri Lanka who sends me all these videos of fake Buddha quotes. I can't believe it. <laughs> Some of them are quite good. <laughs> this is what I liked, because it said uh, that holding on to anger and resentment is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. They might not even know. <laughs> So if you, when we get angry or we get upset, if we think, I'm drinking poison, then that may help us, actually, to uh, let go of it. But the biggest aspect of why we're trapped in uh, being born and born again, reborn, 
of, of coming back to life, having diapers if you're born as a human being, and going through toilet training, going through kindergarten, going through primary school, secondary school, maybe tertiary education, and then, then uh, looking for a job, looking for partners, then getting older, having children, getting, if you have that, that on your list, and then getting older, and, and then having the, the, uh, the experience of, an, of old age, and then dying, and then doing it again. And again and again and again. So this is what we are really trapped in. And has anybody seen? I've never come across anybody that's seen this movie. I haven't seen it either. Groundhog Day. Have you heard it? And this person is stuck on repeating one day, and that's just so Buddhist. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's like you know, re repeat. We're stuck on repeat, life after life after life. For us. You know, most people don't know that they had a life before, so then that, that's not so meaningful for them, perhaps. They think, well, maybe, maybe not. But I say to people, how would you feel if you saw, like, the Bodhisattva on the night of his enlightenment? Millions, not just a few, millions of births, you know, different appearance, different uh, uh, clan, different names, uh, different things that were, you know, different foods, um, things that were that brought happiness, unhappiness, uh, and then seeing passing away. And you saw this a million times, millions of times, more than a million. Wow, that would be incredible. That would really make you think, as I say to people in Sinhala, I say, Wadi. Wadi means too much. <laughs> too much. You would say, I don't want to do this again. Let's not do this again. But more than that, what says this is too much, that um, I don't want to do this again, is really the mind. Because it's the mind at this deeper level of our awareness. Once it realizes this is a hopeless case, it never will be what I want. What do we want? Perfect happiness. We want permanence, actually. We want permanent happiness. We want a permanent self. And when someone has seen millions of lives, they've seen all of this is not on offer <laughs> and never will be. And so then the mind can let go and not be reborn. But for most of us, that is not the option. And where this is coming from, of course, is delusion. This is the uh, third unwholesome root. So we have desire, we have aversion, and delusion. So the Buddha is freeing us from delusion as well. He's giving us information uh, about right view, the nature of reality. This is the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, is Samaditi, right view. And this is invaluable because this is giving us a perspective of reality. It's not our reality, it's the Buddha's reality. But by practicing, say, meditation, making the mind peaceful, uh, making it strong, making it powerful, then it's ready to see into the depths of reality, the nature of life. It's ready to see uh, impermanence, you know, transience, that nothing is dependable, reliable. It's ready to see that there is no permanent happiness on offer. There is a state of yeah, it's good, and then it passes away. Unsatisfactoriness is another word for dukkha, suffering. And that there is no permanent self in here. There is this personality that's changing all the time, changing from life to life, actually, but changing even within this life. And so 
when you see, when the, when the Buddha gives us this information that's pointing in this direction, this is where we can be like those people who are dragged out of the cave, so Socrates says, and they see the world outside the cave. They see the sun, they see reality. And uh, when they see that, they realize uh, this is reality. And the Buddha often, he says, this when a person becomes uh, enlightened, fully awakened, or any stage of awakening, they're seeing things with proper wisdom. They're seeing things with proper wisdom. And that, of course, is this impermanent nature, this, uh, uh, this unsatisfactory nature or suffering, dukkha, and this non-self nature. You know, so they're seeing it in those terms. And so one of the biggest traps for delusion, and the, this really keeps us going round and round. What do you think it is? What do you think is the biggest thing that keeps us going round and round? Any ideas? It's a big part of delusion, biggest really. Yeah, views and opinions for sure, yeah, that is. But it's driven by something else, actually. Ego, ego is driving us from life to life. Ego is attaching to things um, that we take as very dear and uh, so important that we want to be back united with in a future life. So this is what is really driving delusion. Um, the Buddha also mentioned, you know, that delusion is looking for permanence in <laughs> what's not, what is impermanent, can't be permanent, looking for happiness in what is, cannot be permanently happy, and looking for a permanent self in what isn't a permanent self. It's a changing a scenario. I always say we are like works in progress. <laughs> We're changing all the time. So this is the very important area that a Buddha gives. He gives the uh, understanding, the right understanding, sometimes called right view, that allows us to develop the path, allows us to develop the insights that will liberate us. And also at the same time, of course, it's reducing all our, helping us reduce, it's giving the perspective how to reduce our defilements as well. So it's a twofold practice, really. But it's very obvious, I think, to all of us that uh, what is driving is what we're not free from are our, our attachments. I think that's pretty obvious, isn't it? And uh, for the Buddha, these, uh, he, he call, talks about four attachments, uh, four areas that we're attached in. And the first one, of course, is to uh, sensory experience, sensory desire, you know. And this includes, you know, that sounds a bit abstract, this includes, uh, you know, our partners, our families, our friends, our possessions, all those things that we find um, enjoyable, dear to us. You know, the, th the sights we like, the smells we like, the food we like, the videos we like, the movies we like, the whatever we like. You know, uh, these things uh, are a real attachment that, uh, you know, you can, you can see it in a way, you know, just from day to day. Many people, they get up in the morning and they have to have, what do they have to have? First thing, as soon as possible? Coffee, Coffee exactly. 
Exactly. This is driving us from day to day. So you can imagine from life to life. I mean, it sounds a bit much, doesn't it, to say, I'm getting reborn so I can have an espresso or <laughs> cappuccino. But it's, it's, partially, it's a, a partially true. Though I'm sure there are other things that one, other attachments that are probably more dear to one. So... But so these attachments uh, to, you know, our experience of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching are really um, what catches us, what we, we get uh, stuck with, what we attach to. And uh, there's a nice, uh, uh, I was reading some nice suttas where the Buddha talked about the, he was saying the sense objects are like a confinement for the mind. And it's confinement for the mind because of the desire that's attached to pleasant sensory experience, whatever that be. And he, he, you know what he said was the release from that uh, confinement? That's like prison, isn't it? Like a trap or prison. This is, he's got lots of different versions, I think, lots of different answers. But the answer is deep meditation, the dhyanas and uh, the immaterial attainments and the cessation, cessation of perception and feeling. Uh, he said these are all releases from the confinement of the sense objects because in deep meditation, senses turn off. You know, and people, you know, if you tell people at Chadston your senses turn off, they go, wow, that'd be dreadful, you know. What, they'd just be like blank, you know, it'd be horrible. You know, it'd be like a television test pattern or something. <laughs> You know, I'd be stuck with this. But of course, you know, when these senses turn off and when the defilements turn off, because they have to, to go in order for the mind to come together, when that happens, incredible joy and happiness is experienced. So this is far from, you know, uh, uh, you know a boring, awful experience. In fact, it verifies just, you know, what everybody knows. Where's happiness coming from? Where is the joy coming from? Is it from Chadston, <laughs> from from a shoe shop or from a grocery or Coles or whatever it is? It's coming from us because there are many dishes. I see this at uh, Newbury. There are many dishes people bring. Some people think, fantastic. Other people think, no thanks. <laughs> so it's not the dish that's giving us the happiness. We are giving the happiness to the dish, actually. So... When you go in deep meditation, when you go within the mind, you're going to the source of it. So it's, it's a very intense and happy experience. But it also prepares the mind for seeing, for the, giving it stability, giving it power, uh, and giving it happiness. So it can see things as they truly are. And it will not be afraid, like some of those people in the cave that I mentioned, who see the fire and then they think, hang on, too much, I'm going back to my place, looking at the wall, looking at the shadows. So this is a very important area that, uh, of the attachments. The first one, as I mentioned, uh, is uh, sensual desire, you know, these, our five-sense experience. The interesting thing is that when a person goes into deep meditation, they're leaving the world that we know, five-sense world of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, and they're going to another world, the world of the mind. And these are the worlds that uh, the Buddha mentions that other existences are based on, the Brahma realms, some of the Deva realms, and the immaterial realms. So it's a completely different world from what we experience, which is why, of course, someone like Ajahn Brahm says this is so important. 
Because when you leave an experience, when you travel out of Australia and travel somewhere else, whether it be Asia, South America, America, you come back and you think, wow, isn't Australia great because of this, that and the other or whatever. You know, you really appreciate and you really understand what Australia is about and what values stand out to you, what things are important here, what things are positives here. Because if you've had that experience, you've got something to compare with. And so that's the real importance of deep meditation, that it takes us out of our world. We get out of the cave for a while. And having been out of the cave, we've got a lot of information. And this is the basis for insight. So that's the... Uh, the uh, I was going to talk these, the other, the, uh, some of the things the Buddha frees us from, as I said. And that's from desire, aversion and delusion. But... If you look at the Buddha's teaching, so much of it is about the things that limit us. And I'll just mention them briefly, briefly because it's hindrances, isn't it? The hindrance is an obstacle to, deep, uh, to meditate, any meditation really. So they're another one. And the Buddha also mentions the uh, fetters. These are called samyojanas. And they fetter us. They, they, they're like uh, handcuffs or uh, chains that chain us to being reborn again and again. And he talks about those in a lot of details. In order to become attain the first stage of enlightenment, we have to have seen through identity view or personality view the view that there's some there's a permanent I or me in here that's running the show in some form or other and so these fetters are another example of what the Buddha is actually liberating us from and uh, I mentioned the attachments he also talks about the bonds the gantas that tie us uh, and limit us as well they're pretty similar and the whole of, uh, as I mentioned, the whole of the Buddha's path is really about, you know, freeing us all the way from the beginning. You might think, well, this is all very advanced. He's talking about deep meditation and all this sort of thing. But even when we offer dana, like today, when we offer dana, that is freeing us from stinginess, from freeing us from... Uh, there's a suffering associated with stinginess, actually. You can't really enjoy things that much if, you'd, if you don't share. And there's also the fear that others may get what you've got. <laughs> <laughs> or take it. So dharma is, is a way, is, a, is, is a, an aspect that brings freedom from suffering and it should hopefully bring happiness to people. And of course, you know, morality is the same. We are avoiding, if we keep the five precepts, we are avoiding a lot of suffering. I, I, you know, as, a, as a monk and the nuns do too, you hear a lot of people suffering. And I often reflect some of it is because they're not practicing the, the five precepts. One of my teachers said, you, yeah, you know, that uh, they'll never make a, a teledrama about somebody keeping five precepts because it's just not the stuff of teledrama, not drama. I say if you want a dramatic life, break the precepts and then you'll find out. It's not so. so it frees us from that suffering. And it frees us when we develop meditation from the negative emotions and the negative thoughts, hopefully with uh, meditation. And we can develop positive uh, uh, habits, positive mind states, so that these become our normal uh, um, level of operation, where we're coming from. And so we're purifying the mind through meditation. Also, when we... So this is like freedoms from the defilements in a very, uh, very real way. And so meditation also frees us from the past and the future if it's working. 
and uh, frees us, can free us from thought and can free us from uh, the body if we go deep into the meditation. And uh, so this is the area that meditation can can uh, bring up for us. So the whole point of the Buddha's teaching, though, is, of course, you know, is to use the meditation. This is a gradual path, so there's dana, there's keeping morality, this is very important, and then developing the mind, cultivating the mind. So we cultivate the mind in a way that is positive and enjoyable for us. Many people are cultivating quite well, actually, negative states of mind, getting angrier and angrier and frustrated and more upset and, uh, and uh, so on. So it is up to us what we develop, but positive states of mind are very useful. And then to, uh, to have the wisdom, develop wisdom, see the nature of reality, this is the whole point of the path. And to whatever degree we see that, it will bring peace to our lives. We may not be awakened, fully awakened, we may not even be the first stage of enlightenment, but it will bring peace. So a fully enlightened person, a fully awakened person, has total purity of mind, the defilements have gone permanently, and they've also have the wisdom that sees, that uh, the mind sees that there is there's no point in being reborn. And so then they have the happiness of attaining Nibbāna. So I'd like to just finish there and just say, first of all, may we, quite a lot, isn't it? <laughs> may we practice the Dhamma so it protects us. That's one of the things in the last week or so I've really been aware of, that if people don't practice the Dhamma, if they don't keep precepts, then it's a real minefield for them and for suffering. And, uh, and also to so that uh, by practicing we're freed from so many different sufferings and this is this is a feeling it's not just a concept freedom is a feeling of joy of light lightness of being of being free so and so that we can be free of the defilements that bring a lot of suffering a lot of dukkha a lot of grief in our lives and also we can develop the wisdom uh, wisdom of the Four Noble Truths that frees us uh, from uh, being reborn again and again. So I'd like to finish there. And uh, if there are any questions, comments or complaints, you're welcome. So I'd say, actually, I should say sadhu, sadhu, for, for if you can do that, if you can become awakened, fantastic. Good. So any do we have any questions from the floor? We've got three online questions. So it's all about freedom. Oh. All right. And if there's any other questions you can ask, yeah. I do have a question myself. Oh, all right, all right. Good. Ajahn, I've heard that um, analogy of the tortoise coming up from the, from the ocean. Yes, yes. Up into the, mm, the tire yeah. once every hundred years. So you're saying that that's from coming from an animal, animal realm to the human realm. Yeah. Is there is there an analogy in the reverse direction? Like oh. how? All oh, right. Is like how a, easy is it for us to get down to the animal realm, realm or how yeah. hard? Well, I think it's, 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 it's quite easy, actually, depending on our behaviour, isn't it, really? 
because all these uh, realms of rebirth, all the possibilities for rebirth are, def are based on, are predicated by our mind states, the mind states we've developed. And if we've developed quite a, a rough mind state, if we've developed uh, a lot of harming or developed a lot of lust, um, sexual uh, desire, these things, they will fit, the mind state that we develop then will fit into an animal realm. And I think it's, you can see uh, quite a few people are uh, heading in that direction, actually, um, because of those mind states, but also because of attachment. Somebody told me, and I think it's, a, it's something worthwhile to watch out for, you know, because we can get attached to our pets. They get attached to us. <laughs> we can get attached to our pets. But it's also possible, and I've heard a, a, a Thai meditation monk who went to America who was warning people, watch out for your attachment to your dog or your cat, because then the mind can want to go there. Then the mind can want to be reborn there, to be with uh, Fifi or, or whatever the name of the animal is. But I also think, conversely, animals that live with humans may have the opportunity to take a human rebirth because there is that attachment to human beings. So our minds you know, tend to, uh, uh, of course, rebirth based on uh, our actions, and that's called, uh, Buddha said, that's like a field, a consciousness, that's like the seed. And the thing that waters that seed in the field that will be reborn in whether, uh, whatever realm it will be, is our desire, our wanting. But that is, and where we're reborn will be determined by our karma, you know, the sorts of mind states we've developed, the sorts of positive or negative actions, speech, we've, uh, mind states we've developed. So it's quite easy to go down, I think, <laughs> but uh, uh, very hard to come up, yeah. Yes, Ranjeev. Good morning, Ajahn. Good morning. Uh, a question related to that yeah. question which was just asked. Uh, just came to my mind, so thought of asking you. Mm. Uh, the question is this. Uh, is there any uh, clear-cut or, or clearly defined way that guarantees that after rebirth a person gets a human birth again? Oh, right. Is there any guarantee? Only a human birth. Human rebirth, yes, yes. Yes, there is. There is, a, there is one guaranteed way to, to get a human b rebirth, or better, or better. The better is the problem, because if we get born in the Deva realm, then again, the chance ah. of getting doing the practice will be reduced. So is there any clear-cut way of yes. getting reborn as a human only? Yes. No, well, I think this, is, this covers your both options, actually, because if you become a stream-enderer, cannot be reborn lower than a human. You're on the path, you've seen the path, you've seen that uh, there's no permanent I, me in here, and it's all running due to causes and conditions. You've seen uh, dependent origination, you've seen the Four Noble Truths, you've seen impermanence, dukkha, and uh, you've seen non-self. So uh, such a person will either re be reborn as a human or they can become fully enlightened in this life, or even if they go to a, another higher realm, deva realm or whatever, they will take rebirth. Uh, they will still continue to practice. So that's that's the best insurance policy for us, actually. <laughs> but if we can't do that, 
then we can, you know, we, we do the best we can with developing wholesome states of body, speech and mind. We develop dana, we keep the precepts, we develop the mind in meditation. And the Buddha said, you know, that if we develop, if we keep the precepts, if our sila is good, our virtue is good, and we have a strong uh, intention for a rebirth in a particular uh, particular situation or, or realm, human realm, wherever, it is possible as long as we keep that in mind and we have that determination and we have the sila that appoint, uh, that uh, the good karma that makes that possible. And this is like if you want to go to a place and you don't have the money for the ticket to fly there or, or go by train or whatever, you can't go probably unless you walk. <laughs> And so this, the, the, uh, the money, of course, is like the good karma that can take us where we want to go. And the Buddha says, in there's a number of teachings in the Majjhimanikaya. There's a rebirth uh, based on, um, like, intention. And so, ah, there we are. There's, I've heard my voice there. The money for the ticket to fly there. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> feedback, feedback. Some shadows, some shadows. Yeah. Uh, there we are, on the back of the cave wall. <laughs> back, back, of the, back of the meditation. So, so we can, we can to a large extent do that, and uh, it will, it will, you know, that that will uh, uh, is possible for us to determine our rebirth. So you can come back as a human being, come back as a human being. So that's. But less than a stream enterer, it's not a surety of coming back. No, as a human being. no, that's the that's the guarantee. If you're a stream mentor, it's not possible to to be reborn lower than a human being, and um, you know maximum of another seven lives. So, but less than a stream mentor, no, every possibility is there to be reborn as anything. Sorry, less than a stream mentor because if somebody doesn't become a stream mentor. Mm, mm. If somebody doesn't become a stream mentor, then all the possibilities are available after for rebirth. Yes, in a way. they are. But if you if you develop the uh, if virtue, the morality, the precepts, and if you develop dana, and you develop uh, the uh, the precepts, of course, developing body body actions and speech, and if you develop the mind too in wholesome states, we're pretty assured because that's where the mind will tend to go. We'll go to. Rebirth is a stationing of consciousness, they call it. It's a very, very nice term that Ajahn Brahmani uses, vinyana titis. He said, vinyana titis. This is where consciousness is, is stationed. And that's, it's stationed in this life. We're working out our rebirths by the sorts of mind states we develop here in this life. And that's where we'll tend to go on the basis of that. So, Ranjeev, no problem. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Oh, I think we've got to finish soon. Yes, yes. Oh, a, nice to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Ajahn. Yeah. Thanks for the talk. Yeah. As, as I hear about the rebirths and the possible decline to animal realm, it brings up a bit of anxiety and yes. guilt for me. Yes. It takes me back to uh, maybe prior to oh. taking the precepts. Yeah. And I imagine I'm not the only one, you know, when you hear about the possibilities mm. that uh, could be after... This life, yes. I just wonder what, what what do you recommend in dealing with with those states of mind that might arise when you hear the reality of um, mm. of the Dharma of you know mm. what's, what's possible. Yes, yeah. No, that's uh, that's interesting. I know when my mother she used to listen to Buddhist talks and and she heard that she said, oh, she said, dear, that's not possible. 
<laughs> she had an idea that you couldn't possibly be born as an animal if you're a human being. She didn't want it. But unfortunately, she was very attached to her, her dog. So I thought, oh, I don't know. Anyway, so yes, I think it can bring up, and for some people too, when they hear about these different realms, they think, oh, this is very similar to, uh, well, a bit similar to Christianity, isn't it? You know, but it's only when you talk about he heaven and hell, because the Buddhist uh, um, idea of, of different realms encompasses quite a few different other realms, like the animal realm can be reborn in, and also the ghost realm, uh, and also uh, there, there are other realms too, the Deva realms, the Brahma realms, and so on, all these other positive ones. So it does give a range. But the idea of it is not to create anxiety for us, you know, it's to really, uh, they use the term sangvega to give us energy really to avoid that, you know, just to think, well, I don't want to go that way, I don't want to do that. And then to practice, you know, it gives us the incentive to practice. Because you know if, if you practice, if you develop the mind, if you, if you do good things and you develop good speech uh, and develop the mind, that's the way it will tend to go. Because this is a path of cause and effect, you know, cause and effect. So the results of that have to be of a similar nature. Um, of course, you know, there can be the ripening of uh, other karma, that, that is a possibility, but usually whatever is the strong, whatever is the most habitual thing, a tendency in the mind, that's where uh, it will take us in terms of rebirth. So I think, and you know, this is yeah, this is a way we can uh, can uh, deal with it. And I know you, if you, uh, I've, I've seen quite a few animals that have quite a good life in this life. You know, the pets at home and so on, they have quite a good, good life. Some dogs and cats get treated better than people, actually. It's quite amazing. And people give a lot of love and attention. They're great objects or great subjects for developing metta, maitri as well. So I say with those, you know, those cases for those animals, I say, ah, good dana parami, they gave a lot, they, they shared a lot but not good sealer. <laughs> because in the end, you know, some people think that, uh, you know, if you do a lot of dana, that will give you a good rebirth. Not really. It will give you, wherever you're reborn, it'll be the best possible quality if you've done a lot of dana. But that can be as an animal. That could be uh, in a ghost. It could be in many different settings. But if we have very good sealer, it's very likely that we will be reborn in a good place. Because the Buddha, he used the simile of the stick, you know, that you throw the stick up. Where will the stick come down on? Which end will it be more likely to come down on? No, no, no. It, it's going to have one end or the other. Yeah, if you throw it up and it'll come down, it'll come down on the heaviest heaviest end of the stick. So if the stick is uh, like uh, uh, all the, the karma we've made, all the all that good karma we've made, that will be the tendency that will take us to a good destination. And, and conversely, if we've made a lot of negative karma. And sometimes when you read the news, when I read the news, I think, oh my goodness, where are these people, where are they headed to? You know, because I think, good grief, this is not going to be good. But uh, that's it. So that's what I would, I would say, you know, 
to take confidence in the fact if you're practicing, you know, to use that teaching that the Dhamma protects the practitioner, you know, the Dhamma practitioner, the Dhamma protects, and it does. Because as I said, you know, I've, when you do counseling, and I think any, any of the people here do counseling of whatever form, they notice, I notice, that if people are not keeping the five precepts, Usually that's when you get a lot of problems, actually, with, you know, life and, and partners and families and all sorts of things, work and so forth. So this is our insurance policy, really, is keeping practice, practice, and that will protect us. Yes, there we are, just quickly, because it's now 27 past, so... OK, the first question it's here. It's a rainy day, though. My desire to be accepted by others has mm. been tormenting me. Yes. Is this desire... Quotes, the uh, by by sorry is the is the desire justified by the Buddha because because he talks about the importance of sangha. Do I have to be liked by others? Right. Yes. Uh, if if we desire others, if we want others to like us, that's a. It's, def it's definitely setting ourselves up for suffering because not it's not possible that everyone will like us. And sometimes we don't even like ourselves. <laughs> so, you know, this is, is not possible. It's asking from uh, life what it can't give, that everybody will like us. But it's very worthwhile to, you know, to investigate an idea like that, you know, that um, everybody should like me, you know, and just ask, is this, uh, is this sort of true? Is it really true that everybody should like me? Um, you know, and uh, of course, then and then you can ask yourself, you know, uh, how do I feel when I ask, you know, uh, for when I think that everybody should like me? And of course, you feel terrible. <laughs> you're not measuring up. You judge yourself, or you 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 feel, you know, uh, feel a great deal of unhappiness. You've disappointed people. You think, and so on. And then, of course, then the next the next question is, well, how would I feel if I never thought this, that I had to be liked by everybody? Fantastic. <laughs> I would... Uh, and the, then the next question you could ask yourself, too, in that is turn it around. This is uh, from Byron Katie. She uses these questions. And she said... And you say, well, I have to like everyone. Do I have to like everyone? And the person who's asking this can tell straight away it's not possible. <laughs> I don't like everybody. So why should everybody like me? But even if we don't like people, we can still be friendly with them. And this is a big difference, you know. Um, and sometimes when we say loving kindness, it sounds like we have to love the person. But I know quite a few people say, no, no, if we're friendly to them, that is enough. And that, that's true. We, we cannot be liked by everybody, and we don't like everybody. So when we see that, but very good for this person to investigate it and to really check in, check up if this is really true. Because some of these thinking, some of these thoughts we have, they give us a lot of suffering in our lives because they're just completely out of keeping with reality. Reality is not even the Buddha. Not everybody liked the Buddha. <laughs> he was pretty good. He was, he was a marvelous person, a unique person, incredible teacher, a lot of metta, a lot of maitri, a lot of loving kindness. And yet, people didn't like him for various reasons. So I'd say to you, don't ask from life what it can't give. There's another Ajahn Brahm quote. <laughs> 
Do you have time for another question? Yes, actually? I think so. Just a 10.30 now. So. Okay. The, the second question is incomplete, so I won't do that oh, one. Sure, so so this question here, the third one. 10.27. Would you say we escape our conditioning in a, in a small way when we just come back to the here and the now? Yeah, for sure. I didn't, I didn't get an opportunity to, to, to say that. You know, when we are in the present moment, we are letting go, and we, if we do it very well, and we let go of the past and the future, we're letting go of how we've defined ourselves. That's how we usually define ourselves, from the past. You know, we think of ourselves, you know, in terms of what went well, what didn't, didn't go well, etc. You know, so, yes, when we're in the present moment, we have freedom from the past, but also, if we're very much in the present moment, freedom from the future too, the anxiety that can come up or the excitement that can come up about what's going to happen. So no, the present moment is, if we can be in the present moment, is, is a freedom, an escape from all that we see as defining ourselves. And uh, in, the, in actual fact, you know, it, it hinges on the idea that there's a person, there's a me here that is, you know, like this, like that. And, uh, and I define myself in terms of what happened in the past. But in actual fact, in the Buddha's teaching, we are works in progress. This character, this personality, change the conditioning, can change the inputs, and this can change too. You know, so it's, uh, it's not uh, allowing us our full potential. We're being confined, we're being imprisoned by the past. So when we come into the present moment, we're out of jail for, for a while. And depends on how well we can be in the present moment, doesn't it really? Because for most of us, the present moment slips, <laughs> off we go, back we come, off to the future, and so on. And uh, that's natural, because this is the, what the mind has been preoccupied with, so it comes up, doesn't it? Yeah, it's a habit. So definitely, present moment is, I sometimes call it an oasis in the desert. <laughs> yes, good, thank you. Thank you, Aja. All right, so that's very good. And now we can, uh, um, I think after this is the meal, if people would like to come uh, for the meal, there will be, I think, the offering by a certain number of people, isn't it, serving. So that's, that's the way. I tell people at Newbury, this is a great Dhamma training if you're serving, because I say you have to serve everyone else and then yourself last. <laughs> I said, this is going against our, our usual conditioning of, whoa. <laughs> so uh, that will be happening now, and if you can come, that'd be lovely. And so now we can pay respects to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha, if you wish, and uh, end the meeting here. Thank you very much for coming this morning, and may you soon be free. Out of, out of the cave. Oh, there we are.